In the ancient world, various peoples lit fires to mark the turning of the light into winter's season and to pray for the return of the light. The church has Christianized that practice in the lighting of the Advent wreath. To us, these candles are signs of the growing light of Christ who is coming again in all fullness into the darkness of our world. Until the dawning of that great day, we watch and wait in the Holy Spirit for Christ coming into the darkness of our world, lighting candles of hope, love, joy, and peace, and remembering the promises of God with prayer. Watch and wait for Christ's coming. Light candles of hope, love, joy, and peace, remembering the promises of God with prayer. We light this candle of hope. We light this candle of love. Let us pray together. Please join me with the bold words in your program. God of hope, God of love, teach us how to love one another as reflection of your light in the world. May the love of God compel us to care for your children, your creation, and your world. God of promise, God of love, into our darkness come. A reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatest of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 16 to 20. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly 
that what they have done has been done in the sight of, the, of God. This is a word of the Lord. Well, welcome again to First Free. Um, again, my name is Matt, and I'm glad to be with you today and during this season of Advent. Uh, today we're talking about love, love, and um, the way we're doing Advent this year is sort of with the help of someone named Scott Erickson. Scott Erickson is um, an artist and an author, and so his uh, prints are up around the sanctuary. He also has a devotional called Honest Advent, and um, if you purchase his prints, which we did, he sends along some sermon helps if you want to do a series. So I'm drawing on him at different points. I'll try to give credit to him when that is. Um, and if you're intrigued or interested in any of it, I encourage you to pick up a copy of, of his devotional called Honest Advent. There's 25 different reflections in there for the season of Advent. And today is about love. And love is, uh, it's, like a, it's like a slippery word, a slippery word that is kind of hard to, to grab hold of. It's very hard to define. It means different things to different people, right? And so when someone tells you, I love you, you know, what, what does that mean to you? What, what sort of feelings does that evoke? What comes up? When someone tells you, I love you, what does that mean to you? And you might say, well, it depends on who's saying it, right? Is it a parent? Is it a close friend? A sibling? My child? Is it a romantic interest? A stranger? My boss? Uh, who is saying this to me? Um, I was talking to someone this week, and they were telling me about their friend who, because of their upbringing with the word love, thought that every time her spouse said, I love you, it was because he was trying to manipulate her to get something he wanted. And so it actually fractured their relationship instead of building it up. And I'm sure that phrase means different things uh, to you depending on who is saying it and your history with that word. For me, uh, I was uh, lucky enough to have parents who said I love you a lot when I was growing up. And uh, I'm trying to think back as a kid, like what did I feel like that meant to me? And as I was trying to think back, I think it meant things like or at least I received it in the way of, I like you a lot, which is good. That's a good, I care about you. You are important to me. You matter to me. I feel like I received it in that way. And then as I got older, um, probably in middle school, but maybe even as young as third grade, I started to get, you know, crushes uh, on girls. And, and the notion of love took on a romantic lens, for me. Uh, movies and music colored what I understood about love. There's a song that I heard, not in third grade, but later in college, and it, it was by a band called The Format, and the chorus was essentially, I love love. 
I love being in love. I don't care what it does to me. And so at that stage, as I'm developing and understanding love, uh, to be loved meant to be desired, to be wanted, uh, to be physically affectionate towards someone, to feel really strong feelings. If you were loved, it meant that someone other than your parents wanted to be close to you, like really close to you, to hold you, to kiss you, to wake up next to you and eat breakfast with you. Even the romantic comedies conveyed an idea that love should exist through hard times as well. It meant some level of commitment of being there for that person even when things were hard or not going as planned. But mostly what I understood about love at that point was that it was about feeling really strong feelings of attraction and desire and wanting to stay up all night talking and getting to know one another. It was really more about infatuation than, than, than love, but it's what I understood it as. And as I got a little bit older still, uh, going into high school, I started following Jesus, came into the faith of Christianity, started exploring Jesus' teachings, the teachings of the church. And I was told things like, God loves me. I was told that I'm supposed to love God. And I was also told that I'm supposed to love my enemies. And I wasn't sure how you did that. But around this time, I was told a somewhat helpful definition of love, which was to seek the welfare of the other, the other person. Seek the welfare of the other person. And then I learned that it was similar to something that Thomas Aquinas, this great doctor, father of the church, said 750 years ago, which he said, to love means to consistently will and choose the good of the other. To consistently will and choose the good of the other. This was really helpful for me, but it was also very academic. It was like, it felt disconnected from any way that I actually experienced love in my life. And then at some point in college, I was exposed to this author, C.S. Lewis, and his writings about four different types of love, where he parses out these four different Greek words and, and talks about how there's affection, there's friendship, there's romantic love, and then there's charity or uh, unconditional love, agape love, he talks about. And that was helpful as well, but it, it also kind of just highlights the slipperiness of that word love by saying there's all these different types and you only know what someone's talking about if you go into the original Greek. That's not super helpful in day-to-day life. Just when I thought I might have it defined and understood, I realized someone else might mean something else by it. And in, in our culture... In the West, uh, love is, is overused, gets used all the time. It's underdefined, and it's undervalued for what it actually is and does. Oops, dropping some programs. Um, we use the word all the time, right? Trivially, we use it, or trivially, we use it to describe, I don't know, like our favorite restaurant, or our new car, or... I don't know, like I love banana bread with chocolate chips, 
or I love, you know, the sweaters from J. Crew, or I love, I don't know, Chipotle, or I love, but then you mix in between that, I love my son, or I love flying on JetBlue Airlines, or I love God, or I, and you see how you're talking about these trivial little things, and then you're talking about the most meaningful relationships in your life, and they're all with the same word. I love, I watched, uh, so I'm super into like uh, cult documentaries. I love cult documentaries, you might say. Um, and I watched one this week that was very disturbing, uh, it, but it was called Love Has Won, The Cult of Mother God. I also drew, got rid of this, The Cult of Mother God. And um, it's about what it says. It's about Mother God, who is a woman named Amy Carlson, and her cult is called Love Has Won. And Amy um, was a young woman, and she starts getting into a lot of New Age spirituality, and um, eventually comes to understand that she is Mother God. She has been reincarnated 534 times. She's the original mother of all creation. Um, some of those times she was reincarnated as Marilyn Monroe, sometimes Cleopatra, one time as Jesus. Um, one time when she was reincarnated, it was when Trump was too, and he was her father. Um, Donald Trump was her father at one point, uh, not currently. She was also Joan of Arc. And her call was to lead 144,000 people into a mystical fifth dimension. Okay? We, most of us, just live in 3D world. But there's actually five dimensions. And she's going to lead people into the fifth. And uh, her followers believed, you know, this is real. She's the real Jesus. Like, she's Jesus reincarnate. And um, her mission is to take on, similar to Jesus's, but kind of more new agey, her mission is to take on all of the shortcomings of humanity and channel all the negative energy to help humanity ascend to their higher vibrational selves and enter the fifth dimension. Uh, She had a bunch of online followers, but around 12 to 20 people actually moved to like live and sit at her feet very similar to Jesus' disciples. And she was the kind of person, I'm going to do this as best as I can, who often did this. She'd kind of like this. Like if you went into one of her live streams, "Mm, welcome, my beloveds. Mm, You are so loved exactly as you are. Mm, Isn't it so good to be together? Mm. Very, very kind. You know, uh, you know that vibe, right? Maybe I don't know. Uh, but apparently, she could heal people's cancer with the power of love. And her followers claimed, like Christians claim of Jesus, that she was the embodiment, the incarnation, the flesh of love itself. Hence, the name of the cult: Love Has One. She had most of her visions, all these visions, right? Like how she was Cleopatra at one point, Marilyn Monroe. Uh, She had a lot of visions of Robin Williams. He was one of her spirit guides. 
But she had all these when she was on psychedelic drugs. She particularly liked mushrooms. And she would be on marijuana from the moment she woke up to the moment she went to bed. And she would often drink herself to sleep at night. Uh, When one of her followers confronted her about this, she said, these are just tools. Like, once you've ascended to the level of perfection that I have, this is her, these things are not vices, they're tools to interact with God. You know, because she had ascended, she was using her higher vibrational energy for good, not evil. Now, what's really great about this documentary, because this is all a recent phenomenon, is this is in the age of social media. This is, everybody has smartphones. So they're just recording all of it. So the documentary is all just showing you real footage of Mother God and her interactions with people. And the documentary maker does a great job at essentially just showing it. Um, She doesn't interject her commentary, and so she lets you make decisions. What, What is this like? And what you notice is that when Amy, when Mother God, is doing well, she is like this. Mm, my beloveds, you are so loved. She's very you know, kind and calm. And... But when things aren't going well, or when she had drank too much, or was in that state before bed, uh, she'd be cussing people out. Like, she'd cuss her followers out. She'd degrade them, belittle them, degrade them, um, make them feel humiliated. Uh, there was one guy, which is in the footage, who he, he made her some pretty bad pancakes. And so she is just degrading him. Like, you made me the worst pancakes ever made in the world. And he's, like, sitting there taking it, feeling like garbage. She died uh, in 2021 at the age of 45 due to liver failure from alcoholism uh, mixed with malnutrition from not eating enough uh, because she, her followers and her believed she had to be a certain weight because she was actually going to physically ascend like up to be with the galactics. And so if she was over 103 pounds... Um, she wouldn't be able to ascend. So she, and she, uh, chronic colloidal silver ingestion, which is like a way to essentially drink silver. Um, and the reason I bring all this up, one, it's just been on my mind because I'm watching this cult and it's uh, super, super interesting. But it has a lot to do with love and the slipperiness of that word in our culture today. There's this one scene where she's doing a, a Facebook live stream, okay? And it, they're recording her, and she has her phone up, and you can see her phone, and there's only uh, eight people watching it. And, of course, she begins it like, always oh, like, mm, welcome, my beloveds. You are so loved in this space. You are so loved. But then when she realizes only eight people are logging on, she starts freaking out. And she gets really upset at humanity because she's supposed to be saving them, but none of them are, are actually following her. So she starts breaking down, talking about how they're fo- following her and they're just so conceited and they don't care about anything. And she makes a statement. She says, don't they get it? I have loved them unconditionally. 
but they don't love me back unconditionally, and it's not fair. And then she gets really angry. She believes that she's taking on the pain of all humanity because we won't stop living in our lower vibrational energies and ascend to higher vibrational levels. She's mad because she loved humanity unconditionally, but we haven't loved her unconditionally in return. And this makes love really hard to talk about because she even uses a qualifier. She doesn't just say, I've loved them and they don't love me back. I love them unconditionally. She's using this word unconditional as she's complaining that people aren't meeting her conditions of love. They're not giving her back what she wants, which is, of course, the very definition of a condition. Unconditional love is love with no strings attached, and she's mad because the strings aren't being returned. The word love is a very slippery word. It's incredibly hard to define in a way that makes sense out of our actual experiences with it. It isn't a feeling, but it includes these deep feelings. And on top of that, we just don't know what other people mean when they're saying it. We have no way of reading everyone's minds when they use the word love. We don't know if someone might use it to manipulate us. Someone might say, I love you, but really just mean I like you as much as I like my car or my favorite restaurant. And someone else might say it in a way that feels really believable, like, I love you. You mean everything to me. But then they actually treat us like garbage. And this is a problem. This is a big problem. Because the Christian people are the people whose primary identity marker is that they are loved by God. But if love is such a slippery word, we can't really define it or know exactly what it means, it makes knowing what our primary identity marker actually is. You are loved by God. Those who follow Jesus, those who call themselves Christians, you and I, we should be first and foremost understanding ourselves as people loved by God. But in a broken world where love is confused and abused, what does that mean? How should we understand this love of God? The Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the way that we see God. If you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know what love looks like, you look towards Jesus. That means reading the Gospels is sort of the first and foremost way to discover what does love look like. 
And it doesn't always get contained into a simple definition. That's why Jesus has to tell stories when he's talking about love. That's why Jesus himself, a person, is the image of love. There's not a definition, but there is a person who shows what love is like. Reading through the Gospels, there's all these different stories of the way that Jesus interacts with people. The way that he sees them. Particularly people who don't belong. In John 4, there's that famous story where Jesus sits and talks with a Samaritan woman at a well. He's in a place he shouldn't be, talking to a person he shouldn't be talking to. And he offers her healing for her traumatic past with men. He sees her and he delights in her. In Luke 19, there's almost an opposite uh, person. So in, in John 4, you get this woman who's been in five relationships. She's a Samaritan. She's uh, an outsider to the Jewish culture, and Jesus sits and spends time with her. In Luke 19, you get kind of the other extreme. There's this very short man named Zacchaeus who is a wealthy Jewish tax collector. And so he's kind of, in some ways, got a lot of things going for him, but in a lot of ways, he's in a hated uh, job, hated vocation. And... I like this because Zacchaeus climbs this tree because he's short and he wants to see Jesus. And as Jesus is walking by, it says he looks up at him and says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And then uh, it says in the text, everyone starts muttering. What is Jesus doing? He's going to go stay at the house of a sinner? He's going to be the guest of a sinner. But because Jesus sees Zacchaeus and delights in him, goes to his house, spends time with him, Zacchaeus is healed of his greed in such a way that he pays back everyone he robbed four times over. Whatever he took from them, he gives them four times as much. And it says on top of that, he gives away half of his wealth to the poor. If you read the Gospels, you'll notice also in these stories that Jesus tells, in the parables, parables, um, what love looks like. In Luke 10, a lot of these are famous stories, um, but they're really important. Luke 10 teaches us about neighbor love when he talks about uh, a good Samaritan who actually stops by the side of the road when he sees a beaten and abused man. This good Samaritan who stops, but he sees the man. He takes him with him, takes him to a town, takes him to an inn, bandages his wounds, pours oil and wine on him, paid the innkeeper out of his own pocket. He sees the man. In Luke 15, the Pharisees are mad at Jesus because he keeps welcoming sinners and eating with them. And so Jesus tells another story explaining the love of God by talking about a son who asks for his father's inheritance early. He gets it. He goes off. He lives a uh, 
party lifestyle for a short bit, loses all the money, ends up coming back home. And when he does, the father of the child, it says, embarrassingly, like pulls up his, his gown, embarrassingly runs towards his child. Not embarrassed of the child, but in a way that would be embarrassing to him. Runs to embrace his child, offering him a lavish homecoming party. The scripture says in Luke 15, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. What does it mean to be loved by God? At least in part, it means that you're fully seen, known, and delighted in for who you are, not for what you've done or failed to do. In both of the scriptures that were read during the candle lighting, um, <clears throat> the theme of light was primary. And I think they show us how love and light are interconnected. In Isaiah 9, it said, The people walking in a darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You, God, have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. And then a little bit later it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The love of God, the light of God, is a gift. There, the son is given as a gift and comes to us as a baby. Later on, John describes that baby as light. And that's what the memory verse for our city kids is right now. John 1.9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He calls Jesus the true light that gives light to everyone. And I love how the artwork in our sanctuary, particularly those two pieces um, to my my right, your left, light and given, they have uh, the baby Jesus there as a flame, as the light on a, on a matchstick and on a candle. Jesus, the Christ child, is a burning flame. The way John talks about love and light in our reading from earlier, I'll reread again. This is John 3.16. Through verse 20. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict, John says. Light has come into the world, 
But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, but will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. What does it mean to be loved by God? It means you are fully seen, known, and delighted in for who you are, not for what you've done or failed to do. But to be fully known, you have to step into the light. This scripture tells us a heartbreaking reality. Most people don't want to be known by God. They don't want to live in the light because they're afraid of what will happen if who they really are gets exposed. And uh, that's heartbreaking to me, not because it describes a whole bunch of people out there, but because there's a bit of it that's right in here, in me, and I'm guessing in you. To be fully known, to be exposed, is quite scary. Most people are afraid of what will happen if who they really are gets exposed. They think that God has come to condemn the world. And if that's the case, they dare not be fully seen by him. Do you ever feel that way? Maybe with God. Maybe with others. Like if someone else really knew you, like really knew you, knew the real you, they'd no longer love you, respect you, look up to you. Do you ever feel that way? Maybe it's a friend, a spouse. Maybe you're like, if my boss really knew me, I might have to look for another job. Maybe you're a boss, and you're like, if my employee really knew me, they'd be looking for another job. Most of us think this way because it's terrifying to really be known. Maybe, maybe for good reason. Maybe we risked it one time. We risked being really known by someone and it didn't go well. We heard a sermon like this. We tried it. And uh, it didn't facilitate love. It fractured it. Maybe we really showed ourselves to someone. We took the risk and they stopped calling or slowly drifted away or put in their resignation. We stepped into the light and we got condemnation, not embrace. And when that happens, and in a broken world it does and likely will, if you put yourself out there at least once, then we stop showing up as our whole selves. We've learned over time, it's not worth it to share that part of me. It's just not worth it. So we hide parts of ourselves from others. And when that happens, we begin doing that with God. Usually below the surface, subconsciously. It's not that we're actively saying, I'm going to hide parts of myself from God. But when you're so accustomed to hiding who you are from others... The way you show up to those relationships is the way you'll probably show up to every relationship, including with God. 
We hide parts of ourselves from others, from God, and even from ourselves. We stop living in the light because when certain parts get exposed, it doesn't seem to go well. Scott Erickson, the artist, these art prints, he tells us about his friend Taylor, who had said to him one time, quote, I don't want God to love me. I just want God to tell me what to do. Because if I let God love me, he will love me the way I am. And if I let God love me the way I am, I will have to see the way I am. Coming to the light. And I don't want to see the way I am, so I'd rather God just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. This is sort of a relational truth in a lot of places, not just with God. I'm pretty sure I've been in a fight. It wasn't ending how I wanted it to end. And I probably uttered those words. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do to fix this thing. And for those of us who've put ourselves out there and been hurt, this might seem like a compelling spirituality. Tell me what to do. I'll do it. And then I know we're good. Tell me what to do. I'll do it. And then I know we're good. Is that what your relationship to God sounds like? God, listen. Just tell me what to do. I'll do it. And we're good. And it sneaks in. Maybe to our prayer life. We might hear ourselves uttering things like that. God, just tell me what to do. I'll do it. And we're good. Or in our, in our Bible reading, in our times of engagement with the Scripture, what we're really looking for is just Okay, yeah, there's these stories. Okay, but what do I need to do? Just, if someone could just delete all the stories and images and pictures and metaphors and just write it out. One, two, three. Here's what you do. Look, I'll do it. And then we're good. Scott says, Incarnation is the process of becoming seen. To be seen is to allow yourself to be known. To be known is to risk being loved or not. Incarnation is this big theological word. And around this time of Advent and Christmas, it shows up even in our songs. So we might as well spend time thinking about it. But it's this big word and it just means putting flesh and blood on something. You can remember it, incarnation, if you like tacos. Carne is right in the middle. Carne is the meat, the flesh. And I'm getting hungry already. But incarnation. Scott says, put on flesh and blood and show up. And that's what Jesus did. That's why we talk about this word for Jesus. He is God incarnate. God in flesh. God in skin. God that is seen. Touched. But Scott also highlights that to be seen is to allow yourself to be known, to step into the light, which John says people don't want to do that. The verdict is we chose darkness. For Jesus to fully become the light, the true light, 
It's Jesus. Nothing in him is hidden. He allows himself to be known, and that means the risk of being loved or not. And as I talked about last week with vulnerability, it was a real risk. And it ends with Jesus on the cross. In John 3, Jesus comes to us as a gift of God to show his love for his creation. It says, God so loved the world. If you're wondering, what, why? Why send Jesus? Why do this? The compelling factor for God was love. An abundance of love that needed to go somewhere. God so loved the world. And this is important. Because it doesn't say, God was so angry at the world that he sent Jesus. It doesn't say, God was so disappointed at the world. How could you? That he sent Jesus. It doesn't say, God didn't want to get his own hands dirty, so he sent Jesus. No. Out of love, God gives the gift of God's own presence, which can be seen and touched, held and looked in the eyes in Jesus. He comes in love, which means he comes in vulnerability. Again, Scott Erickson says, quote, Why is being seen so hard? It's hard because when you decide to live in your true self, which means your strengths and your weaknesses, your light and your shadow, your superpowers and your kryptonites, you are revealing yourself to the world, and you can now be touched, loved, rejected, embraced, ignored, and all the other complicated interactions that come with human relationships. He said, this is the exciting and terrifying proposal in an everyday life. So much so that some of us are questioning whether revealing yourself is worth it. Friends, being seen for who you really are is always worth it with God. Now, this doesn't mean you shouldn't uh, exercise discretion. doesn't mean reveal every single part of yourself with every single person in every single situation. Okay? Um, exercise wisdom. Some people aren't safe to talk about certain things with. Uh, that's okay. But there needs to be someone in your life who is. Being seen is always worth it. God's light, according to John 3, is not a beam of condemnation, but a light drawing you in to salvation. Right? It's much more like uh, the light from a lighthouse that's drawing you to shore. It's worth the risk to be seen by God for who you really are, because this is who God really loves. It's not the you that has a mask on. My encouragement as we close, my admonition to you today is to risk showing up as you really are this week. Start small. Pick one conversation, both with God and with another person. One moment with another person 
where you can be fully honest and open. And if you don't have a safe friend where you can do that, reach out to me. Um, Not because I need to be that person in your life, but I'll help you get connected to someone who can be that person in your life. It's worth it. I'll end again with our artist Scott Erickson's words. He says, May it be known that the giver of existence took the same risk we all have to take daily to be seen and known as the person we really are. The risk of incarnation is the risk of love. And love risks heartbreak, rejection, being sold out by your friends, because love is also the animating source that brings about all the wonderful things in an incarnation, like companionship, joy, healing, wholeness, and being seen and known in the world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I believe that the only way that we fully experience and comprehend your love for us is through your Holy Spirit. And so I pray, even now, in this moment, would you pour out your Spirit upon us. Those of us, Lord, who can't even comprehend what it might be like to be seen, known, and delighted in by you, would you bring about that experience by the presence of your Spirit? Those of us, God, who are just doubting that that could possibly be true, I pray again by the power of your Spirit, you would come in love and show yourself. Help us to be open knowing that all we can do is receive what you have. In the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, amen.